0: Well, good morning, Uh, glad that you are here this morning and have come out to uh, worship with us and be a part of the service this morning and this time where uh, we can gather and praise the name of our God. If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you uh, to turn with me uh, to the book of Zephaniah chapter 3. If you know much about the church calendar, not our church calendar, but the church's calendar, um, this time of the year from near the end of Thanksgiving until Christmas is considered to be the season of Advent. And what Advent means is, is basically the coming, if you will. And from a church perspective, what we celebrate in that that season of advent is the time of the Lord's first appearing. Uh, the Bible talks about uh, two advents. The time when Jesus came and was born of a virgin Mary and was born in Bethlehem of Judea and he came as God in flesh and he dwelt among us. Is how the Bible puts it. That that God left the splendor of heaven and came and lived with us. And we know that during that first time, that first advent when Christ was born, that he grew into a man, a man who lived a perfect and sinless life before God. He was arrested and he was beaten, he was tried, wrongly convicted, he was put on a cross, and He died there in our place. And we understand from the Scriptures that on the third day, on that first so important Sunday morning, that first day of the week, as the sun came up, the disciples and the ladies who had went to the tomb discovered that the stone was rolled away and that Christ had risen. Well, I think it's very interesting then that as we come to this portion of Zephaniah as we are thinking about the first advent that we celebrate in just 10 days on Christmas that he begins to tell us about the second and he's been talking about it through his entire book but but i think in these last verses in these last verses that we'll look at today and next week we We see the great joy that is found in the coming of Christ. That we can have great hope. We can have hope that overcomes great tribulation and great difficulty. And we can have that because of the arrival of the King. And so if you would stand with me this morning in reverence to God's Word, beginning in the book of Zephaniah chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14, the Bible says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty One who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. You may be seated. At the end of the message last week, if you were with us, we looked at the characteristics of those who have been forgiven. Those who have been forgiven, who are humble and lowly, those who seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who do do no injustice, those who speak... No lies, those who are not deceitful, and those who find their security in the Lord. Well, today, as we look at this passage, I think we finally are able to answer the question definitively that we have had before us throughout this entire book. Is there hope There have been times when we have been looking at the book of Zephaniah and it was hard to see hope there. Because God's judgment on this day that Zephaniah is describing is great. God jealous because the people that he created have worshipped other gods. He sends out his judgment in Zephaniah chapter 1 and we see it in Zephaniah chapter 2 and We come here, and we see joy. We see restoration. We see God's forgiveness. This day that seems like, if you were just to read certain portions of this book, this day that seems to be terrible, this day that seems to be fearful, is somehow here turned to rejoicing. It's somehow here turned to excitement for God's people. There in verse 14, we read, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Something has changed. How do you begin this book all the way back in chapter 1 by saying I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth? And we come here to Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 14, and he says, Rejoice. How is that possible? I think it's possible because when God comes again, when God comes a second time, when God comes to claim his people, it will put much of what we have suffered in our lives, it will put much of what has happened in the world that we do not understand, it will put, not much of it, it will put all of it into perspective. See, right now, I think it is very difficult for us to understand why things happen. It's one of the great problems, not just with Christianity, but it's one of the great problems that people deal with in humanity in general. Why do we suffer? Why do we go through hardships? Why do we lose loved ones? Why do we see school shootings? Why do we see people in other parts of the world who are starving to death every single day? We we do not... Comprehend suffering. Because honestly, it is incomprehensible. We can try our best to, to work out why it happens, or we can do oftentimes like they did in in the Bible, which Jesus chastised them for. We will blame people suffering on this particular sin or the sin of their fathers, and we'll do this, and we'll do that, and we'll try to make excuses, and we'll try to figure it out, and we'll try to blame it on mental illness, or we'll try to blame it on gun control, we'll try to blame it on greed, or capitalism, or communism, or whatever it is. We try to find something to blame it on, but We really in the end, if we're honest, we don't understand. But when we get to this point, this, literally the last moments of human history Zephaniah is describing here, somehow God takes this day of destruction, this day of pain and sorrow, and he turns it to rejoicing. This day that is presented as terrible, somehow, and this verse gives way to singing and rejoicing. God has changed everything. And look how he does it beginning in verse 15 the Lord, they can rejoice, they can sing and shout because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. God has forgiven them. For His people, He has saved them from the judgment to come. He has told them very clearly about it. He has told them of their need to repent and turn from their sin. But in the end here, because of His great mercy, He saves them from the day that is to come. We are quite unable to escape God's judgment. We're quite unable on our own to work ourselves out of it. To somehow make it less effective on us. Not only are we unable to do so on our own, but the Bible makes it very clear that we are unworthy to do so on our own. That we have nothing within us that would cause us to be saved. We have nothing. When God looks at us and our sin, it is it's ugly. He looks at our sin and, and He hates it. He looks at our sin and He wants nothing to do with it. God is not easy on sin. God wants sin away from Him. He does not want to bring it close. And yet on this day, He has taken away the judgment. He's forgiven us. He's forgiven us of all of these things that we have done that made us unworthy to be saved from this day. Yeah, I fear that too often we as as believers in Christ, we, we get it in our mind that somehow we're pretty good. I mean it's it's one thing for us in the confines of our building to to talk about the fact that we love sinners and that we want to see sinners forgiven, but it's another thing to actually go. And actually tolerate being around people who are sinful. We forget, I think, very often that, that we are exactly, we're just like them. We get it in our mind that somehow we are better. Yet, yeah, that couldn't be further from the case. Except by God's grace, we would be caught up in this day of judgment We would have no hope except that God has extended His wonderful and marvelous grace to us. We would utterly be destroyed. This day of judgment that God talks about would consume us fully. But God's desire is that people would be saved. And therefore, on this day of judgment, He removes judgment from His people. Secondly, look at the next line. He has cleared away your enemies. The day of the Lord is a day of triumph and victory. A day where He removes our enemies from us. If you think about the history of the people of Israel, they had nothing to fear from their enemies until the point in time when they turned away from God. When they turned away from God, that is the day that they had to fear their enemies. That is the day that their protection was removed and enemies would sweep in and utterly destroy them. They didn't have to fear until they disobeyed. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you go to chapter 3, you read about the fall of mankind. On that day... Humanity was introduced to its greatest enemy. On that day, when sin entered into the world, when when the man and the woman, when Adam and Eve believed the great lie that they would not die, but rather would have knowledge like God, when they believed that lie and disobeyed God, they were introduced to humanity's greatest enemy. But on this day, on this day that Zephaniah talks about when God forgives his people, when God removes their sin completely and delivers them from judgment, we are in that day delivered from the first enemy that we faced and the last enemy that we will ever face, and that is death. What greater enemy do we have than that? A great enemy to us is the fact that we're going to die. I truly believe that Adam and Eve had no need to experience death. They didn't need to see it. They didn't need to experience it. They didn't need to have any contact with it. But on that day when they disobeyed God, they were introduced to that enemy. But on this final day that Zephaniah writes about, the day of the Lord's death, our great enemy is cleared away. It's removed. It's destroyed. The Bible tells us that death is swallowed up in victory. We had the most wonderful example of that ever on the cross. Here, death seems to conquer God. Christ, hanging there, takes His last breath. And death seems to be the great victory. But when the stone is rolled away on that Sunday morning, death is defeated. Death is destroyed. And on this day that Zephaniah talks about, it will be wiped away forever. There will be no more funerals. There will be no more school shootings. There will be no more wars. There will be no more killings. In that day, it is completely destroyed. And what a great hope that is. Because you and I realize that as believers in Christ, if we live, we live in Him. And if we die, we go to be with Him. We get to dwell with Him forever. In this great day of God's judgment and wrath, and mercy, and grace. Death is defeated once and for all. The third thing, the end of verse 15, the third reason that they can rejoice, the third reason that they can have hope is because the Lord is in their midst. The king of Israel, the end of verse 15 says, The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. How interesting it is that if you go back to the book of 1 Samuel, and you see when the prophet Samuel is there, and he is the one who anoints Saul king of Israel, the first king. But before he anoints Saul king of Israel, God expresses his disappointment. If you go back and read that, you see a place where God is profoundly disappointed in his people. And he is disappointed because from the beginning, from the time that God called Abraham out of the land and sent him to a land that he would show him, from the time that Moses led God's people out of Egypt and led them into, or led them to the promised land. And when Joshua leads them into the promised land, God desired to be the king over his people. And in 1 Samuel, he is profoundly disappointed as he tells them, I want to be your king. You don't need a man. You don't need a king who will sit on a throne. You need only me. He tells them, he says, if you have a king, he is going to enslave your children. He is going to take your possessions. He is going to send you into war. You don't need a king. You only need me. And the people say, we want a king. And they get Saul, who is not a good king. They get David, who, while a good king, was very, very imperfect. They get Solomon, his son, who again is a wise king, but is very, very imperfect. And after that, the kingdom splits, and it's never joined together again, all because they wanted a king. Well, how great it is to know that on that day, when God sets all things right, on that day of the second advent of Christ, that day when God comes back and He judges and shows mercy, on that day the King will be among us. He says the King of Israel is in your midst. As Zephaniah writes here, there is no Israel. It has been conquered. It has been destroyed. There is only Judah where Zephaniah writes. But he looks forward to a day. A day that for Zephaniah is far off. A day that for us, we don't know how far off it is. But a day when God, as King, comes and dwells in our midst. And dwelling in our midst, we shall never again fear. How exciting it is to think That one day God is going to come and going to serve as our king. We will have no need for any elected officials. There will be no power in Washington or Raleigh. There will be no power in the state capitals of this country. There will be no power in the national capitals of every country on the face of this earth because there will be one king and he will dwell with us and he will be our king and we will be his people. And we'll never have to fear again. We won't have to fear when Iran says they're developing a nuclear weapon or North Korea shoots off rockets across the sea and threatens South Korea. We won't have to worry about planes flying into our towers. We won't have to worry about sending our troops into battle because God will be our king and we will be his people and we will have nothing to fear. And Zephaniah wants his readers to take away the hope that is found in God's presence. He goes on to elaborate about that. See, they're rejoicing here because their sins have been forgiven, because their enemies have been cleared away, but he wants them to see that the main thing to be excited about, the main thing to rejoice about and shout about is the presence of the Lord. And how appropriate that we would come to this passage as Christmas is upon us as we celebrate God dwelling with His people. Because look what happens. Look at the hope that is found when the God is present. Look in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. He says it again. This is the second time in just three verses. He says, A mighty One who will save. Think about this. When this day comes that he's describing, this day of the Lord, I believe that as it comes upon us, there will be many who will continue to seek refuge in other places. They do it today. We seek seek refuge in our false gods. We seek refuge in our money. We seek refuge in our stability. We seek refuge in our government. We seek refuge everywhere but God. And it will not change in that last day. But on that last day, the only place where salvation will be found is in God. And the reason for that is that when you and I are saved, we are not only saved to God, we are saved into a relationship with Him. He calls us His friend. He calls us His children. He adopts us as sons and daughters. He makes us joint heirs with Christ. But, we are also saved from God. Now that may sound odd, but if you flip back through the pages of Zephaniah, The judgment that's coming here, it's not coming from some outside country. They're not having to fear being invaded by Syria here. They're not having to fear being invaded by Babylon. They're they're not having to fear those things. The Egyptians aren't attacking them to the south. The judgment that comes here is from God and from Him alone. And I don't know how he'll use people in that day, and I don't know how it will all work out, but I can promise you this, the judgment that comes is a judgment from a righteous and holy God. And yet, when we come to chapter 3, we read about a God who is mighty to save, and we need to realize that God saves us from himself. The theological term in the New Testament is propitiation, that Christ died as our propitiation, which means that God, by looking at the sacrifice of Christ, then in turn looks favorably upon us. It's the great thing about what Christ did on the cross. He is the sacrifice, He is the one making the sacrifice, and He is the God who looks pleasantly upon us because of the sacrifice. He is priest and prophet and sacrifice. He is the lamb who goes to the slaughter, but at the same time, He is the priest who is making the sacrifice. We were unworthy to do any of it, and so He does it all for us. And so as we read here that God is mighty to save, we should know that He has saved us from His own wrath and judgment. He didn't save us from some outside force. In the end, He didn't save us from sin even. He saved us from His judgment. What a great God we serve that while He was the one who was going to be judge over us, He also stands in our place. So it's not us. It's not us standing there trying to plead with God. But it's God's Son standing there pleading on our behalf. That's a God who is mighty to save. Secondly here, not only is God mighty to save, but, but Zephaniah writes, he will rejoice over you with gladness. If you're reading this and Zephaniah was standing right beside you, would you not flip back over? and read about all these things that God's people had done that had made God angry, and go, how is it that you can write here, God will rejoice? How is it that you can write here that God will rejoice over people who have rejected Him, who have worshipped false idols, who have went in false directions? How is it that you can say that God would rejoice over them in this instance? the word that Zephaniah gets from God is that in God's mercy, in God's salvation, he will stand and rejoice over his people. See, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Sometimes as believers, we take great excitement in the death of the wicked I remember how embarrassed I was when it was announced a couple years ago that Osama bin Laden had been killed in Pakistan and they turned on the TV and there were people rejoicing in the streets. And what it reminded me of, and I don't know if you remember this or not, but on September 11th of 2001, I got home from school and was watching the news and they showed people in Palestine who were rejoicing in the streets that our buildings had been struck. And immediately when I saw Americans in Times Square and in front of the White House rejoicing because this very evil man was dead, I thought how sad it is that we became just like them. I'm really glad that our God does not delight in the death of the wicked. That God took no delight when Osama bin Laden left this earth and entered eternal judgment. God took no delight when Hitler died in Germany as as the Allied troops were, were making progress toward Berlin. I don't think it changes the fact that they faced the judgment that they had coming, the judgment that they deserved. But the Bible tells us that that's the judgment that we deserve too, apart from Christ. That God's salvation is so amazing that it takes we who are wicked because God would not delight in our death being wicked and it transforms us into a person that God calls righteous and son. The image here is is much like God rejoicing as a groom would over his bride. It's a passage that we can find in Isaiah and then of course it's imagery that we see in the New Testament that, that a groom, when he, when he gets married, he rejoices over that fact. I remember when, when Rachel and I got married, it was, it's been almost 10 years ago now, and they, we were at the front of the church and it was the two aisles like this and I'm standing up there and I'm, I'm standing with, with my dad and with the preacher and, and we're, we're standing there and those back doors open and I busted out crying like a baby. I mean, just bawling. And I don't think it was because I was scared. I mean, I was 20, and I I wasn't exactly sure what I was doing. It's it's worked out pretty good so far, but um, it was really cool because this woman was going to be my wife, and she was going to take my name, and, and I was excited. That's what God is doing here. He has brought us out of sin He has brought us out of darkness and wickedness that we could never hope to overcome. And so as He calls us out, as He is mighty to save, God rejoices in our salvation. He rejoices in the hope that He has given us. He rejoices in the forgiveness that He has given us. It cost Him greatly. It it cost Him the death of His Son. But He rejoices because now we have hope. The next part is, is again it, it feels like on the day that I got married because he, he says on the next line he will quiet you by his love. His love leaves us speechless. That we, what do we say? H- how do you describe the love of God? How do you describe the love that God has shown us in saving us from certain judgment? We have to have a balanced approach when we look at our salvation. We realize what God has saved us to, He has saved us to a relationship with Him and an eternity with Him. He has saved us to heaven and bliss forever. But He saved us from certain death and judgment. And that love leaves us speechless. And then lastly here, if you look in verse 18, the hope that's found because the Lord dwells in our midst He says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. God turns our mourning, He takes our mourning and He turns it into joy. He removes it, He destroys it. We go to the book of Revelation and we see that there will be no more tears, they're wiped away. Are gone. We won't be sitting there worried about this or that. We won't be concerned about feeding our family. We won't be concerned about taking care of our kids. We won't be concerned about the things going on because God will have set all things right. There couldn't be tears in heaven. There couldn't be mourning in heaven because there would be nothing to be upset about. On this day when God comes and His, his judgment is poured out, But His mercy is poured out. He'll remove our mourning. And it'll be gone. I want to challenge you with this this morning. The last part of verse 18 tells us that God removes the reproach of His people. God removes the reproach of His people. He removes their embarrassment, he removes their stains. He removes any, anything that would bring reproach upon his people that's gone. I think it's very interesting that that day, or that that is included in the day of the Lord. That day ultimately becomes vindication for his people. See, the people of God are to be meek and lowly, the people of God are to be persecuted and outcasts. The people of God suffer greatly. Read the Bible. Go to the book of Acts. Look through Paul's letters. Go and get you a book on church history. See how greatly the people of God have suffered. The people of God have suffered simply for claiming the name of Christ. The people of God suffer all over the world today just for being a Christian just for believing that Jesus is the Son of God. There are countless thousands, if not tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands, in prisons all over the world because of their faith in Christ. There are more people today killed for their faith than at any other point in history. If we hear about a few, imagine the numbers that we never hear about. And yet on that day, When God pours out his judgment and God pours out his mercy, the people of God will be vindicated. On that day, every tear will be wiped away from their eyes. God will save them and will on that day turn their hope into sight. Think about the countless numbers of believers who will die today with the hope that is in Christ. They die knowing that they're going to leave this life and go and be with Christ forever. Well, on this day, on this great and terrible and powerful and mighty day of God, He will turn all of the hope that we have ever had into sight. There is no more hope in heaven. There's nothing to hope for. It's there before you. There's no faith to have in heaven. Nothing to have faith in because it's there before you. On that day, God will do that for His people. So I encourage you with this. As this day approaches, our goal as believers in Christ should be to share with as many people as possible the hope that is only found in Him. The rest of what we do in life will pale in comparison to what we do in preparing people for God coming again. And if it causes you to suffer, if it causes you to go through pain, if God calls you to a place where He is going to cause you to suffer greatly, understand this, that in that day, all of your work and all of your efforts will be vindicated because God, God is saving His people. And he is preparing a great day when they will be vindicated, when the reproach will be moved and they will be removed and they will see him as he is. This day is a terrible day of judgment for those who are not prepared. It's a day that's inescapable. It's a day where excuses will not work. It's a day where nothing will matter except for your relationship with God. But how great it is to know that if we are found in Him on that day, we no longer have to ask if there's any hope. But we'll get to see the one who is hope. We'll get to see the one who has laid down His life for us. He'll give us life. He'll forgive us of our Sin, He will clear away our great enemy in death, and he will be our king, and he'll be so forever. We should anxiously await for that day. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. We thank you that we have hope God, we God, I feel like I'm surrounded often by hopelessness. God, there, there things seem to be disintegrating quicker and quicker. And God, we look at the world around us and and everyone is pulled in a million directions and God, so few, so few turn toward you. And God, so my prayer is that as we celebrate your arrival, we remember that in in you (coughs) and in you alone, we have peace. We have the promise of tomorrow. God, we have hope unending. God, if, there's those, if there are those here this morning who don't know you, God, I pray that, that they would see your great love, your great mercy toward them, that you have sent your son to die in their place. God, I would just ask that you would speak to their heart. God, encourage them. God, show them your grace and mercy this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. The folks in the back are going to put some music on the screen, and I hope you'll consider, uh, I hope you'll watch that, but I, I, I would ask during this time that you would consider responding to what God has told us in his word. You know, what great hope it is if we're in Christ. But friends, there are billions and billions of people in our world who are not in Christ, who don't know Him, who have not placed their faith and trust in Him. Wouldn't it be appropriate this morning for you to ask our Heavenly Father how you might have an impact on those people? I don't expect you to take a message like this and and I think it's the exact wrong approach to go out and beat somebody with your Bible and tell them they're going to hell and God's going to pour out his judgment on them and it's, it's just not the way to do it. But since you know that there's a day coming when God is going to end human history, when God is going to set eternity into motion and when God is going to show his judgment and his mercy, would it not compel you to share that with someone else? I would invite you to consider that as we sing this morning.